1 Corinthians chapter 9 as you make your way back to your seats. If you're here for the first time, uh, one of the things that we typically do here at Indian Creek, like many other gospel preaching churches, is we work paragraph by paragraph through various books of the Bible, and for the last several months we've been in Paul's first canonical letter to the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians, and we find ourselves now in chapter 9, right in the middle of a larger section in which Paul addresses the Corinthian church uh, on a matter that, frankly to us, feels a little foreign, the idea of meat offered to idols and our freedoms that we have in Christ and exercising those in a way that uh, builds up the believers around us and commends the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's where we find ourselves today. And Paul inserts his own, uh, his own practice, his own uh, lifestyle as an example to us uh, for how this ought to look in the life of every believer. So that's where we find ourselves today. And let's pick that up in 1 Corinthians 9. We'll begin reading in verse 1. I'm sorry, I'm in 2 Corinthians 9. Have you ever done that before? <laughs> I just looked at that and I thought, I don't remember studying this passage this week. <laughs> All right, let's try again. 1 Corinthians 9. Paul says, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not speak entirely for our sake? It was written for our sake. Because the plowman ought to plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting." 
For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward, but if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? Lord, once again, we just want to thank you for the way that you've powerfully worked through the preaching of your word and through the fellowship of your people, uh, especially in the lives of our, our young people. And we ask that you would cause your word to uh, grow strong and powerful roots in each heart and to remain so that we, together, can bear fruit and give you glory. And Father, I pray that today, as we examine this text in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, that you would once again work powerfully by the power of your Spirit and in the name of the Lord Jesus to change us and conform us to the image of your Son. Father, we pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Several years ago, a friend of mine uh, alerted to me that his company, a billing software firm in the city in which we were living, had a position that had opened up for which I would be a good fit. We had talked uh, several times about work, and he knew enough about what I did for a living that uh, he thought I would be a good fit for his team. So he encouraged me to get him a resume that he could pass along to his boss. At the time, we had four young children. Uh, we had just purchased a home. Finances were tight. I was uh, highly motivated to advance myself in well, making money. So when my friend told me about the job, it seemed like a bump up in responsibility and therefore possibly a bump up in pay. I was eager to apply. So that afternoon, I went home and I started to brainstorm about all the projects I had worked on at, at, at work over the last year or two. And I went through some old emails and reports to find the concrete facts and figures and put those into my updated resume. And uh, I spent hours on that, proofreading, rereading, rewording, before finally emailing the document to my friend late that night. After a couple days, I was invited to interview for that position. So I got my hair cut. I took a half day off of work. I made sure my business suit was clean and pressed. I went online to the company's website and found their core values so that I could bring those up casually in conversation during the interview. I Googled interview questions and prepared myself to answer things like, can you describe a time when you had to deal with a difficult person? <laughs> or tell me about an instance when you felt like you were out of your element, things like that. I'd come across these types of questions in my interview prep, so I was ready to go when they were asked of me. And of course, I was also prepared to discuss compensation. I knew how much I made. I knew how much my benefits package was worth financially, so I had a very clear idea in my mind of what that number was going to be. So when I sat across that conference room table from my prospective boss, it was a polite conversation, but I was there on a mission. I was there to get something out of that conversation, 
And even though this guy seemed likable enough, a person I could see myself working for, in that moment, he was my adversary. I was after a better situation, and I was going to press my advantage using all of my knowledge and experience to get the position and the pay that I felt I needed. You know, most of you have been in a situation like that, right? We have to zealously pursue these opportunities in order to support ourselves and our families. As a Christian professional, you have to be honest, but you also have to market yourself and your skills in order to uh, get the position that you feel that you need and, and to support your family. And this is a good thing, and it's what many of us are called to do, all of us perhaps at one time or another. But the reason I bring it up is because you need to know that working as a minister of the gospel is almost nothing like that. Pastors, missionaries, seminary professors, etc., we don't sell a product or a service. We don't, did you know that? We don't, we're not up, I'm not up here to sell something. We don't take credit for the things that God has done in connection with our ministry. We certainly don't negotiate in an adversarial way with the people of God. We aren't there primarily to get something. We're there primarily to give something. You see, the truth is that while churches like Indian Creek Baptist Church have a commendable, exemplary uh, uh, approach to ministerial compensation, the average church member, the average Christian, I'm sure you, you would admit this, you would agree to this, uh, just doesn't think about it all that often. So the financial relationship between a church and its ministers simply isn't a thing that, that we think about every day. I probably think about it more than you do, but you probably almost never think about it. And yet, it would seem that the Apostle Paul wants the whole church in Corinth, from the elders and the deacons down to the brand new church members who had just been baptized, to understand this dynamic. Papyrus, parchment, is precious. He's not just going to waste words just to talk about himself. And yet he spends a significant portion of this letter to the church in Corinth talking to the whole church about this issue. And I think there are at least two reasons why he does that. Why you, just like the church in Corinth, need to understand this issue. First of all, because as the Lord works in your life, you may find yourself in a position where practically you need to understand these things. Maybe you'll find yourself in a leadership team, a personnel committee, or, or yourself an elder or a deacon, and you have to uh, think through these matters on behalf of your church in a leadership position. Maybe the Lord is going to call you into a ministry position like this, or a family member, and you need to understand what Scripture says about these things, rather than just uncritically accepting whatever it is, uh, comparing whatever it is that you do in uh, the world to whatever it is that ministers are called to do. So that's the first reason. It's a practical necessity. But another reason, maybe even the central reason, as I think you'll see, is that ministers like the Apostle Paul aren't just called to be the messengers giving the message of the gospel. We are also called to be models of the gospel, a gospel-shaped life in our own ministry. And you see, whether you end up in gospel ministry, a preacher or a missionary or something like that, 
or you end up doing something else, fulfilling another calling. That ought to be true of every Christian, that our life would model the example of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that larger point still applies to all of us, and Paul means for all of us to take our cues from him in this way. So with that in mind, here's what Paul's communicating in the opening verses of chapter 9. Financial support is the minister's right, but his reward is to freely serve. Financial support is the minister's right, but it's his reward to serve freely. And we need to unpack that. So what I hope to do this morning is to kind of preach a message in two halves. First of all, focusing on the minister's rights, and then secondly, the minister's reward. So consider with me in the first place the minister's rights, the minister's rights. In the first half of our passage, Paul offers a vigorous defense of uh, his own right to financial support. He begins by establishing his identity in verses 1 through 3. Paul, of course, is an apostle. Uh, basically, that means someone who's sent. Uh, the ancient Hebrews had a category for this type of person. Someone like Elijah or Elisha, a sent one, sent out by the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, God's prophets were referred to in the same way. And this is how Paul uses the term. He simply means, Jesus sent me to do a specific job. Now, there were people in Corinth who questioned that in Paul's case, and we'll see why, but the evidence should have been undisputable to them because, as he says in verse 2, if to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you because I am the one who brought the gospel of Jesus Christ to you. I'm the one who God used to plant this church, and you wouldn't even be here if it weren't for the ministry that God had led me to do. So you all know I'm an apostle because I was the one that Jesus sent to you to preach his message and command you to follow him. And it's on this, the basis of this identity as a gospel minister that Paul begins to speak about his rights in verse 4 and following. By the way, it's not just the apostles strictly so-called that have these rights. In verse 14, he expands it out to all people who uh, uh, preach the gospel and minister the gospel. He's, he's applying it to the case of someone even like Barnabas, who was not strictly speaking an apostle at all. So when I say the minister's rights, I don't, on the one hand, I'm not talking about just anybody who says, well, I'm a minister, you have to pay me. That's not what we're saying. But on the other hand, it's not just apostles like Paul. It's preachers and pastors and missionaries, people who are commissioned by Jesus to minister the gospel so that others come to Christ and grow in Christ, people like pastors or missionaries. That's who I mean. Okay, well, what a... What about these people? What does Paul want to say about people like this? Essentially, he wants to say that ministers of the gospel have the right to be supported financially by the churches they serve. And he, he basically offers three reasons why this is. First of all, it's apparently normal for ministers to receive financial support. It's normal for ministers to receive this kind of support. Look at verse 4 and following. He says, don't we have the right to eat and drink? Don't we have the right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and, and I who have no right to refrain from working as a living? What, what is he saying? He's saying it's normal for gospel ministers to receive support 
from the churches that they serve. Look at these examples. The other apostles don't work to support themselves. They receive support from the church. Uh, Cephas, that's the apostle Peter, by the way. Uh, He doesn't have to go fishing every day to pay his bills. The church supports the apostle Peter. The brothers of the Lord, that's people like James and and Jude, Jesus' half-brothers. They don't build furniture or frame houses for a living. The church supports them financially. That's what's normal, Paul says. In fact, these guys get paid so well that they can actually support a family. They have a wife. Remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7 about being married? If you're married, you have to care about the things of the world, and you have to care about pleasing your wife. And apparently the church was supporting these guys well enough where they were able to take care of themselves and support a family. Now, Paul doesn't take advantage of this right, and we'll see why momentarily, but based on the examples he cites, this is obviously the norm. It's normal for gospel ministers to be supported by the churches they serve. Not only is it normal, it's logical. It's logical for ministers to receive financial support from the churches they serve. Look at verse 7. Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? See, gospel ministers are are like soldiers in Christ's army. We do battle on behalf of the people of God. We're not fighting against people. Paul says that in Ephesians chapter 6, right? We're not wrestling against flesh and blood, but we're, we're fighting for people against the principalities and powers of the world. And anybody who devotes themselves to ministry can tell you that this is exactly what's going on. Spiritual beings are constantly oppressing, they're disappointing, they're discouraging, they're accusing. Ministry is war for the souls of man, and like soldiers, gospel ministers are called upon to serve with vigilance and endurance. And what, what, what we're called to do is to bravely fight on behalf of God's people, but what we're not called to do is avoid any Support. King Jesus deploys his armies, but he also provides for them too. Gospel ministers are like vine dressers. I'm not an expert in vineyards, but I understand that cultivating a truly successful vineyard, it's not the work of a a single week or a single month or even a single year. It's the work of decades, generations even. Patient focus and steel nerves are a must When drought and storm threaten the life of the vine, talented vineyard workers recognize that the impact of their decisions might not really be felt for years. And so they they understand there's not quick fixes for this, that they've got to invest the time and and, and use the wisdom that was passed down to them. And and, uh, the real test is whether one's work lasts. This is what Christ says to his disciples. I want you to bear fruit and I want your fruit to remain. Gospel ministers are like shepherds. They constantly watch for the souls of the members of the flock. They keep their eye on the horizon, wary of the wolves and the lions and the diseases and the dehydration and the drought. They attempt to grow their flock, and they recognize that healthy sheep reproduce, so they care for every sheep in that flock. And so what Paul's saying is, if it makes sense for a soldier to receive rations... If it makes sense for a vine dresser to share in the fruit of the vine, if it makes sense for a shepherd to wear the wool and and drink the milk of the flock, then 
it's logical to assume that ministers of the gospel are going to be supported by the churches in which they faithfully labor. So, in other words, it's normal. This is what the other apostles are doing, excuse me. It's logical. This is what makes sense to do. And then thirdly, not only is it normal and logical, but thirdly, it's scriptural for gospel ministers to receive financial support from the churches they serve. Look at verse 8. Paul says, uh, do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Now, I just think it's funny. Isn't it just like the Holy Spirit to offer a flattering illustration of gospel ministry like that? You know, every preacher should just feel so flattered to be compared to an ox. Uh, This is a direct quotation from Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4. It uh, refers to the way that a farmer would uh, fasten a beast of burden, an ox, a donkey, uh, to a grinding mill. The animal would walk in a circle and uh, lead this giant upper millstone to roll over the top of the grain to kind of turn it into flour, right? And and so obviously that ox might have an interest in some of that grain, and and it might have been normal to muzzle the ox in order to minimize the waste. Like, I don't want this ox to eat up all the grain, and so I'm going to put a muzzle on him. And, and, And Moses says, you can't do that. But Paul's telling us that that Moses didn't write that for oxen. Uh, Martin Luther would later joke, this can't be for oxen because oxen cannot read. (laughs) But in all seriousness, the principle embedded in that scripture is that the one laboring ought to be able to share in the fruit of one's labor. And he alludes to some traditional uh, material written later to bolster the point. The plowman should plow in hope. The thresher should thresh in hope that when the sun sets and the tools are put away and the flour is turned into loaves of bread, that he'll get some of that bread. He'll share in some of the crop. And that's why Paul says that financial support is his right. Literally, he has the authority to be supported by the church in Corinth. Because they were the branches of the vineyard that he had cultivated. They were the flock over which God had given him authority. They were the, 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 the people that he was called upon to protect. And now he's not, make, he's not done making his point, and we're, we're not either. But let's just pause there for a second. Paul's saying gospel ministers have the right to be financially supported by the churches they serve. You say, well, okay, that sounds good. What does that have to do with me Today, And I think it would be appropriate for us to draw out at least three applications before we move on to his larger point. First of all, I think it's worth saying that gospel ministers do not work for the members of the church. They work for the master of the church. Gospel ministers do not work for the members of the church. They work for the master of the church. I mean, think about it. Who owns the flock? Who owns the vineyard? It's not the sheep or the grapes, right? The the vine dresser doesn't work for the grapes. He works for the master of the vineyard. And it's true 
of, of gospel ministers. And I think sometimes we run the risk of uncritically accepting a worldly mentality when it comes to the operations of the church. Maybe you've heard people speak this way. Preacher, don't forget who pays your salary. Now, no one here, I don't think, has ever said that to me. I think I would have remembered. But I have heard people say that. Maybe you have too. What does that reveal? It reveals a skewed value system, a lack of understanding of what's really going on. Uh, You pay somebody to fix a leaky pipe. You pay somebody to change the oil in your truck. You pay to purchase a cartload of groceries. But, But you don't pay. Did you know this? You don't pay a preacher for his service. No, you give as the Lord leads to the work of the church as an act of worship. So, gospel ministers, we don't work for the members of the church. We work for the master of the church. Secondly, I I think this is especially important to keep in mind if you're still relatively young in your career. Keep in mind, gospel ministry is a worthwhile calling. Gospel ministry is a worthwhile calling. Now, for many of you, that might seem really obvious. But for so many people in the world, uh, there's this idea that being a, a pastor, being a missionary, devoting your life to the work of the ministry, that would be a waste. That would be unwise to do. I remember uh, years ago when I put in my notice at my previous job to tell them that I was coming to Mineral Wells, Texas to be the pastor of Indian Creek Baptist Church, the, the responses were comical. It was like they're trying to make sense, the people I worked with, trying to make sense of this decision. Like, why would you leave your career trajectory and the benefits that we enjoy and the security that we have and the, uh, the, the upward mobility and the educational opportunities and the retirement plan? Like, that doesn't make sense. Why would you do this? There's no category in their mind that they had for what I was called to do. But in the church, we do understand what it is that's valuable about the ministry. We recognize that the Son of God was born as a man and lived and died in place of sinners and then rose again and that he's reigning as king over the entire world and that it is the job of believers everywhere to proclaim the kingdom of God and to announce that he's come to die for sinners. And some people get to do that for a living. And so we understand that there's value to that, that it's worth giving one's life to do it. And I just wonder if there's somebody out there right now whose heart is developing a a burden for this type of ministry, maybe a teenager, Uh, and you're wondering whether full-time ministry might be God's calling on your life. And I just want to say, don't let anybody tell you or communicate to you or imply to you that, that ministry, that gospel work is somehow less than, because it's not. It's a glorious work, and obviously the Lord puts a value on it so much that he likens the ministry to the work of the priests and the Levites who were supported financially by the people of God. You remember that passage that Danae read earlier in the service? The people of God were coming, and they were worshiping, and part of that worship involved supporting those who ministered in the temple. And and Paul says in this passage, gospel ministers in today's church, they're like that. Jesus places a value on 
the work of the ministry. It's not a fallback for those who don't have the skill to find a real job. Yes, I've heard that one too, and no, I've not heard it here, thankfully. No, it's a worthwhile work. If God's leading you to pursue this call, don't for a second think you're settling. Application number three, ask yourself, if everybody in the church was as committed as I am, what would happen to this church? If everybody in this church was as committed as I am, what would happen to our church? Here's what I mean by that. The reason why I say this is because we have a hard time relating the responsibilities of the entire church to my responsibility as an individual Christian, right? Like we say things like, man, our our church, we ought to support our pastors. But then do we do what God has called us to do as individuals to facilitate that? Or, hey, we really need to have a great children's ministry. Or I wish somebody would spend a little bit more time cleaning the Sunday school rooms. There's just dust everywhere. But when the time comes for us to tithe, to volunteer, to work with the kids, we're not anywhere to be found. And, And so I encourage you, just ask this, because everybody can't do everything, right? God doesn't call us to do that. God gives different gifts to everybody in the church for a good reason, but if everyone in the church were as committed as I am, what would happen to our church? Would it grow? Would it, would it have a greater ministry in our city, or would that ministry sink, uh, shrink? What I'm saying is that if gospel ministers have the right to be financially supported by the churches they serve, then that means that individual members of those churches need to say, I share in that responsibility. I'm going to walk in obedience to the point where if everybody in the church responded this way that I'm responding, our, our congregation would have many more opportunities to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. So ask yourself, if everybody acted like I do, what would happen to our church? Now, there are many more applications that we could draw just from this one point, that, that these ministers have the right to be financially supported by the church. But actually, Paul is, actually brings us up in service of a greater point, and that's what we're going to move on to here secondly. Not only uh, consider the minister's rights, but secondly, the minister's reward. The minister's reward. You see, while it's true that Paul had the right to receive excuse me, financial support from the, the, the Corinthian believers, it's actually not a right that he exercised. Paul, amazingly, never collected any financial support from the church in Corinth, even though he had spent a significant amount of time there. In fact, if you carefully read the book of Acts and the account of Paul's time there in the city of Corinth in the book of Acts, you learn that when he moves from Macedonia to Athens and then finally gets to Corinth and ends up spending a year and a half in the city of Corinth, that he actually has to take a job as a tent maker Uh, while he's living there, and then finally, uh, after months of him supporting himself, a financial gift comes from, from Macedonia all the way down to Corinth, and then Luke tells us that Paul's able to devote himself to the ministry of the word at that point. Even though he's ministering in one of the wealthiest cities in the entire Roman Empire, he has to wait on a financial gift from the poor folks in Macedonia, and that's when he is able to support himself uh, I'm sorry, to, to, to give uh, his time uh, to the ministry of the word. So uh, 
these people to the north, uh, living in Philippi and Thessalonica, they're deeply poor, yet they support Paul more than once, and the church in Corinth doesn't. Why is that? That's weird. Why is it that he is not able to collect money and support from the Corinthian believers? Is it because they're being stingy? Well, no, because he implies in verse 12 that there are other gospel ministers who do receive financial support from the church at Corinth. By the way, in 2 Corinthians, he makes that even clearer. This becomes a point of contention between Paul and the church in Corinth. Now, why, why is that? The answer lies in understanding the powerful cultural dynamics in a wealthy, up-and-coming Roman colony like Corinth. You see, Paul works for Jesus, but many of the Corinthian believers still didn't understand that. They were wrapped up and, and kind of twisted together with a system, a cultural system of patronage in the city. He doesn't work for the Corinthians. He serves the Corinthians. He wants to bless the Corinthians, but Jesus is the boss. And yet even the believers in the church hadn't learned this yet. They were immersed in this system. Talented speakers in the Greco-Roman world were expected to avoid work so that they could cultivate the life of the mind. And in order to facilitate that financially, they would seek out wealthy patrons. And part of their job was not only to think and write and speak and teach, but also to put in a good word for the guy who was paying their bills. And you can kind of see why Paul would decide not to receive financial support from them. It also explains why the Corinthians were always casting doubt on Paul's identity as an apostle. Why is it that in First and Second Corinthians, Paul's apostleship always becomes this area where he has to defend himself? Well, it's because the Corinthians, from a worldly perspective were thinking like this. They were thinking, hey, an apostle is an important person. He's a public intellectual. He ought to act the part. He ought to refrain from work. He should receive a stipend from a wealthy patron and put in a good word for him. A, a pastor in their pocket, so to speak. Paul isn't playing the game, so the Corinthians reason, some of them at least, he must not really be a real apostle. Paul obviously thinks very differently, and this is really the key to understanding the whole point of this chapter. Not only would buying into that system compromise Paul's integrity and recast his message in terms of how it reflected back on that person who was financing his ministry, but it would actually, what Paul recognizes is something that the Corinthians stole, and here's what it is. An apostle, any gospel minister really, isn't just the person who preaches the message of the gospel. A real gospel minister also serves as a model of the gospel, or he ought to. And in Paul's case, he did. He, he serves as a model of the gospel. See, in Paul's case, the issue of financial support was the perfect way to publish to the world that the Savior I'm preaching is a king who gives up what is rightfully his in order to serve everybody else and save a people for himself. Paul's life was a picture of the selflessness of Christ. That, that's, that's not proof that Paul's not an apostle. That's proof that he has spent time with Jesus. You see, even though it was Paul's right as a, a minister of the gospel to receive financial support, he was after something much better, much more rewarding. It was his reward to offer the gospel free of charge. And if I could just summarize what Paul's saying in verses 15 through 18, it's this. He's saying, preaching the gospel is my duty. 
It's the bare minimum. My king told me to do it. I don't have a choice. He's in charge, not me. So if I preach the gospel, all I've done is my duty. And, and, and I don't get a reward for that. I don't get well done for that because all I'm doing is what my king has commanded me to do. That's me doing my job. I'm just a steward. I'm just the butler standing there and taking care of the business that Jesus has given me to do. But I don't, I don't want to just do my duty. I want to follow Christ. Christ didn't just do his duty. He could have enjoyed the praises of the angels and, 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 and the, the uh, glory of his father and the uh, joys of heaven. He could have arrived on earth in a blazing chariot to receive the wealth of the nations and destroy his enemies with the snap of a finger. He could have done all that. He had the right to do that. But he didn't just do his duty. Christ gave himself for the life of the world. Instead of serving himself, he was born in a stable and laid in a manger, not a palace, a barn. Raised in rural Palestine, not a cosmopolitan city like Corinth. He was taught to work with his hands and labor with the strength of his own back, not rest on a cushion and receive the service of slaves. Left his home, had nowhere to live as he traveled around Galilee teaching and healing. As a young man, never married, owning nothing, he set his face toward Jerusalem and he delivered his own body over to the wicked men who would ask him to carry his cross and go to Golgotha so that he might be killed. Jesus had no form or appearance that we should admire him, no beauty, no splendor that we should bow to him. Beaten, bloodied, disfigured, dying, he bore the wrath reserved for you and me as he hung there. And he didn't have to do that. But he chose to do it because of his deep and unfathomable, glorious love. He died for us. This is the Savior we serve crucified, risen, hands pierced by nails, beckoning all of us to believe. This is the king Paul proclaims. And he says, look, how can I merely do my duty when my Savior laid aside his rights for sinners? No, it's my reward to offer up the gospel free of charge. I'm, I'm after the acclaim. I'm after the approval of my crucified Savior so I can bear my cross. That's my reward. And nobody is going to take that away from me. You see, for Paul, financial support was his right, but his reward was to serve freely. And although each minister is in a slightly different life situation, the truth is that this applies to every single one of us, all ministers, all believers. If we focus on what we have the right to enjoy, then there is no reward. The reward is for those who lay aside their rights and are far more valuable than the rights themselves. Now, I want to be really practical, so let me clarify something before you cut my pay or anything like that, all right? No, I'm... I'm I'm partially joking. Um, <clears throat> Paul isn't saying that ministers who don't collect a paycheck are, by virtue of that, more spiritual than ministers who do. Remember, Paul isn't married, so he doesn't have to support anyone but himself. And keep in mind, he does welcome financial support from other churches. If you have a family, your, your first calling is to support them, and that's going to take up a lot of your time, so you either have to find a job 
or you have to receive the gift of financial support from your church. But on the other hand, we ministers need a heart check every once in a while. Did you know that according to surveys, a high percentage of pastors would quit if they didn't need the money? Did you know that? A high percentage of pastors would quit. They would do something else with their life if they could make the same amount of money. The only thing that's keeping them in ministry is the money and maybe the fear of going out into the unknown and having to find something else to do. That might be okay in a different line of work. But in the ministry, that is not okay. Jesus calls that being a hireling. You're not a shepherd. You're a hireling who runs away when the wolves attack or when the going gets tough. You're just doing it for the money. Like, would you preach? Would you study? Would you minister if you weren't being paid to do so? Obviously, if you're not being paid, you have less time to study. You have less time to devote yourself to these things because you've got to support your family. But if you were not being paid, would you use your free time to do ministry like this? Actually, this is one of the ways that God clarified my call for me during a season when I felt like God was closing the door on ministry. Like, I I wasn't sure if I was hearing the Holy Spirit right, like, because it seemed like so many closed doors, and and yet every time I had a chance to minister, God was leading me to use my free time to study and to preach. And so one of the elders of my church said, you know what, maybe that's because God is laying it on your heart to actually do this, and you shouldn't give up on your call, and you should pursue it. See, gospel ministers don't work for money. They accept the gift of financial support because then it allows them to devote their strength to the ministry calling without having to work another job to support their family. But we don't work for money. We work for Jesus. So what I'm saying is that your support of me allows me to fulfill my obligation to my family and fulfill the call that Jesus has on my life at the same time. So I don't have to work all day and then do ministry in the margins. And so, yes, I try to work hard. All of the, the, the ministry staff here works hard. But we also recognize that that financial support is a gift. It's a blessing because of how it enables us to spend our time. Honestly, if this were about money, I wouldn't do it. There are a lot easier ways to make the same amount of money, believe it or not. But thankfully, it's not about money. It's not about the money. And I get to work for King Jesus. Yeah, he's commissioned me to serve you. He's commissioned ministers to serve the church. But he's the boss. And that's a privilege. And that's rewarding. You say, Jake, that's great. But I'm not a minister. So how does this even apply to me? Here's the point that Paul is making. When you lay aside your rights for the sake of the gospel in any way, when you say no to the things that you are allowed to do because they're getting in the way of someone else's spiritual health, that is rewarding for you. That's a blessing, and you will find that reward is there. So yes, Corinthians, you can avoid eating in the idol temple. Yes, Indian Creek, you can avoid something you enjoy that might cause a brother to stumble because the reward of following the example of Christ is 
worth it. You see, rights are important, and you ought to know what your rights are. Financial support is the minister's right, but look to the reward. It's his reward to serve freely. You know, it's our privilege today to share a meal with the one who modeled this most perfectly for us. Jesus was a human man, just like we are. He had affections and longings. He experienced pain and pleasure. Instead of grasping for what he could get, though, he opened his hand and then he stretched out his arms and he was nailed to a cross, not so he could suffer pointlessly, not because he was a masochist, but because in order to save a people for himself, That was what was necessary. He wanted to be the atoning sacrifice, the Lamb of God that takes our sin and cleanses us from unrighteousness. So as we prepare for this ordinance, this moment of communion with him, let me just invite you to pray this prayer. Christ, how specifically, how specifically do you want me to follow your example? How do you, you lay down your life for me. How how do you want me to lay down my life for others? You gave up your rights in order to have the reward of saving souls. What rights specifically in my life do you want me to forego in order to fulfill the ministry calling that you placed on my life? That answer is not going to be the same for every single Christian because God calls each of us to a different calling. But I wonder if the Holy Spirit might lay it on your heart today, something specific that he's asking you to lay aside to give up some right that you would say, I don't need that in order to fulfill the ministry that God is calling you to fulfill. Would you take a moment now to pray that prayer with me as we prepare our hearts for this celebration of Christ's body and blood?